in History, the bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a podcast which shines a spotlight on a person who was born on this day at some point in history, somewhere in the world, who made a positive, lasting impact. Today, March 3rd, we're going to talk about Dr. Samira Musa, the first woman to work at Cairo University, the first woman to hold a PhD in atomic radiation, and one of the first advocates in the world for nuclear hazard protection. Dr. Musa stands out among all of our other humans in history, not only due to these amazing accomplishments, and not only because she's the first Egyptian human in history that I've covered, but also, most insidiously, because she is the first person that we're going to talk about on this show that died a mysterious and suspicious death. On this show, we've covered a lot of people who died of old age or illness, Some died from tragic accidents, like Robert Henry Lawrence Jr., the first black astronaut whose life was cut short by a plane crash. Some died as the result of torture, like Karl von Osetsky, the only Nobel laureate to die in Nazi custody. Some were straight-up murdered, like 76-year-old Chief Funmulayo Ransomkuti, who was thrown out of a two-story window by the Nigerian army as they raided her son's home, or Jimmy Lee Jackson, the civil rights activist who was murdered by the KKK. Some died as a result of substance abuse, like Disney's first female animating legend Mary Blair, or the fastest woman in the world, Dorothy Levitt. But we have not covered someone whose death was shrouded in such mystery, the bizarre circumstances of which potentially involved shady practices by foreign governments eager to control the monopoly on atomic power. So let's delve into the all-too-brief life, all 35 years of it, of Dr. Samira Musa. Samira was born in El Garbia, one of the 27 governance or territories that make up the country of Egypt. El Garbia is in the northern part of the country, about 90 kilometers north of Cairo. As long as she could remember, Samira was raised by her father, a political activist, Samira's mother died when she was very little after a horrific battle with cancer, and it was the memory of seeing her mother suffer and die in agonizing death that would inspire Samira to work towards making cancer treatment more accessible and efficient via the power of radiation. So Samira and her father moved to Cairo, where she enrolled at the Qasr el-Shok Primary School. Her father kept him afloat by investing in hotels, and by the time Samira had finished her primary education, her father was able to build the Banat el-Ashraf Secondary School, which Samira attended. Her grades were exceptional, and her teachers pushed her towards an engineering degree, which was considered an acceptable branch of the sciences for women to get into. But she knew what she wanted to do. In her own words, my wish is for nuclear treatment of cancer to be as available and cheap as aspirin. So Samira enrolled at Cairo University, and in 1939, she completed her Bachelor's of Science in Radiology at the top of her class. The Dean of Cairo University, Dr. Mustafa Mushrafa, a brilliant theoretical physicist whose work included the development of both the quantum theory and the theory of relativity, knew that Samira was a special student. He asked her to lecture at Cairo University about her work on the impact that x-rays have on various materials. She was later made an assistant professor, becoming the first female employee at the university. 
Samira then began her work on her PhD in atomic radiation. Not only was her gender a curveball for the field, so was Samira's plan. Unlike the vast majority of scientists studying radiation at that time, she didn't want to get into weapon development. She wanted to use nuclear science for healing, specifically for treating and identifying cancer cells. Once she completed her PhD in England, she was officially the first woman who held a doctorate in atomic radiation. Dr. Musa was now one of the world's foremost experts on x-rays. During the 1940s, x-rays were super expensive, they were very inefficient, and they were not the radiation workhorse that they are today. So she went to work on making the exposure time shorter, making the x-ray beams more flexible, decreasing the patient's exposure to radiation, making the machines easier to use, and simplifying the fluoroscopic processes. Despite being an expert in the field, Dr. Musa would continually volunteer her time at hospitals trying to improve x-ray technology and its accessibility for doctors. And in her free time, she discovered a way to split the atoms of cheap metals like copper, which would allow their nuclear energy to be accessible. Unfortunately, this discovery would be stolen by unscrupulous governments and used in nuclear warfare. And this was so far from what Dr. Musa had envisioned that she created the Atomic Energy for Peace Conference. The Fulbright program got wind of her, and she was given a scholarship in the early 1950s to do research and tour the labs at UC Berkeley in California, alongside theoretical physicist and UC Berkeley physics professor J. Robert Oppenheimer. This was met with a fair amount of complaining because it would make her the first non-U.S. citizen to have access to these top-secret nuclear labs and all of the information about the Manhattan Project. But several labs and universities were so thrilled by her work that they offered to sponsor a green card for her or even help her get citizenship so she could stay in the States and keep working. But Dr. Musa refused, saying, Egypt, my dear homeland, is waiting for me. Dr. Musa had no idea that when she said that, that she would never see Egypt again. Samira was scheduled to fly back to Egypt when she received a call at night at her hotel room. A voice identifying herself as a colleague asked if she would be willing to stay a bit longer for a dinner to discuss business. Samira agreed, and the voice said that they would send a car for her. On August 8, 1952, a car pulled up at Samira's hotel. She got into the backseat of the car and began her trek down the curved California coast. The car rounded a bend and began to head straight for a cliff. This movement was in a matter of seconds, and in that time, the driver opened the car door and bailed out. The car plummeted over the cliff with Samira trapped in the back seat, finally crashing to the ground 40 feet below. Whether she died on impact or finally succumbed to her injuries while laying in the wreckage is not recorded. When her father and colleagues reported her missing, it took a few days before her body was found. There was no sign of the driver who had escaped unscathed but never contacted the authorities, seeming to have vanished into thin air. When the man who had invited her to dinner was contacted about the identity of the driver, he had no idea what the police were talking about. The call that Samira had received inviting her to dinner was from a mystery person pretending to be a trusted colleague. Samira's death would be referred to in Egypt as the sunset. Creepily, this was only the first in a series of bizarre deaths involving Egypt's nuclear scientists killed while in other countries. 
In June of 1980, Yahya al-Massad, the Egyptian-born head of Iraq's nuclear program, arrived in France to research reactor fuel. The morning he was supposed to fly back, the hotel maid walked into the room and found his body. He had been brutally beaten and stabbed to death. The last person to see him alive had been a prostitute who went by the name Marie Express. She gave a preliminary statement to the police department, and a few days later, she was chased, run over, and killed by a car who sped off, never to be seen again. Two more Iraqi nuclear scientists would die of poisoning over the next few months while doing research abroad. In 1989, an Egyptian microwave scientist named Saeed Bader began to get worried. He had just resigned from a post in Germany, and upon his return to Egypt, he felt that he was being watched and followed, and that his phone was tapped. His apartment had been ransacked, but the only things taken had been research documents and computer files. His electronics and valuables were untouched. On July 14th, Bader was found dead in the street. He had fallen, or been thrown, from his balcony. He was found to have signs of asphyxiation and slashed wrists. The Egyptian government said it was an open and shut suicide, but Bader's family and colleagues had questions. He had given no signs of being suicidal. He had no history of mental illness. Also, how did he manage to slit his wrists and choke himself before throwing himself over the balcony? It's impossible that he threw himself over the balcony, survived, and as he lay there on the sidewalk, slashed his wrists and managed to somehow choke himself to death. But the questions went unanswered and his death is still a mystery to this day. The most recent mysterious death was that of Egyptian Abu Bakr Ramadan, the former head of the Network of Radiological Monitoring, a watchdog branch of the Egyptian Nuclear and Radiological Regulatory Authority. He had been assigned by the International Atomic Energy Agency in 2015 to help assess environmental effects of nuclear plants in Iran and Israel. In September of that year, he went to Morocco for a conference on coastal pollution. On the last day of the conference, September 6th, Ramadan told his colleagues he wasn't feeling well and he went up to his room to get some medicine, but he never came back down. A hotel worker found him barely breathing and an ambulance was called. He died en route to the hospital. The official statement was that he had a heart attack, but whispers of poisoning still circulate to this day. So what do all of these mysterious deaths and murders have in common? They are all said to be the work of the Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency. The Mossad has denied all of these allegations, but why was there even bad blood between Egypt and Israel in the first place? Well, it goes back to the 1950s when Samira was murdered. Samira was heading the movement for Egypt's peaceful nuclear program. Two years after her death, Egypt would build their first nuclear reactor. By the end of the decade, Egypt had formed its first ballistic missile program with the help of German rocket scientists. What was the problem with that? Well, the problem with that was that these were the same scientists who had been employed under the Nazi Germany rocket program 10 years before, and this did not sit well with Israel, obviously. Egypt's choice was a very controversial one, but their justification was that it was due to Egypt's policy of not picking sides in the Cold War. So they did not want to partner up with the U.S. or the Soviet Union, and since there were precious little resources and technology in the Middle East, this only left them Germany. And they thought that they had to really start building rockets quickly because their enemy, Israel, was amassing quite the arsenal. 
In July of 1962, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser gave a huge military parade to show off the new test missiles. And at this fete, Nasser made the horrible gaffe of bragging that the missiles could reach as far as, quote, south of Beirut. Word of his comments got back to the Mossad, eliciting a panicked reaction. The Mossad's response was a violent intimidation campaign targeting the German scientists called Operation Damocles, which focused on kidnapping and sending bombs in the mail. Headed by Isser Harel, who was still rightfully seething over the Holocaust, he said that all German people were marked to die following the arrest of Adolf Eichmann, he felt that this was the provocation the Mossad needed to start picking off the former Nazis. Five months after the parade, a package arrived at the office of rocket scientist Wolfgang Pils on November 27th. His secretary opened the package and it exploded, injuring her. A package was next sent to the Heliopolis rocket factory, exploding and killing five people. A West German professor who'd been on assignment for Egypt in Germany was shot at by an assassin in a speeding car. Heinz Krug, the head of a Munich-based military hardware company that was a primary supplier for Egypt, was kidnapped and never seen again. That he was murdered, we can assume, but there are conflicting reports as to whether he was killed by former Nazi commando Otto Skorzeny or by a group of Mossad operatives headed by Isser Harel himself, taken to Israel, tortured, and then killed. In 1963, an assassin tried to kill rocket scientist Hans Kleinwacher, but the gun jammed. This whole operation wasn't officially discovered, though, until two Mossad agents, the Israeli Joseph Ben-Gal and the Austrian Otto Joklik, were arrested in Switzerland for threatening Heidi Gorek, the daughter of electronic guidance expert Paul-Jean Gorek. They told Heidi that if her father did not return to Germany, he would be killed. Joklik and Ben-Gal were arrested for illegal operation at the behest of a foreign state. Investigation linked the two men to the murder of Heinz Klug and the attempted murder of Hans Kleinwacher. Israel was now in a spot of scandal, but they denied that their country would ever resort to anything aside from what they called peaceful persuasion. By 1963, the death threats and the danger and the diplomatic complications drove most of the German scientists out of Egypt and back to Germany. Egypt's program floundered until it partnered with the Soviet Union in 1967, who provided them with Scud B rockets and no less amount of controversy. Considering that Dr. Musa's one goal was to save lives with nuclear power, it would have broken her heart to learn of the amount of death that would come as a result of its research, production, and implementation. To date, Dr. Samira Musa's name has been bestowed on laboratories and schools throughout Egypt. My sources today were Medium, Wikipedia, Egyptian Streets, POC Squared, and Mahala. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating on Apple Podcast. It means the world to a totally homemade podcast. And if you're feeling social, you can follow Humans in History on Instagram at humans underscore in underscore history. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Dr. Samira Musa. And please join me on March 17th when we talk about civil rights icon Bayard Rustin. See you then.